Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 498th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who encourages landscape and gardens with plants favored by native bees. We're talking with Jamie Powellick about pollinator-friendly habitats. Jamie is the owner of Wild Bee Garden Design and has been studying native bees for nearly 15 years. She graduated from UC Berkeley with a degree in conservation and resource studies in 2008. At the university, she worked in the Urban Bee Lab with Dr. Gordon Frankie for several years, where she learned about the close relationships of bees and plants by observing their interactions all across California. With the information she learned, she started designing gardens full of native and drought-tolerant plants for homeowners and businesses to help them create valuable pollinator habitats. She currently works as a taxonomist, identifying bees for various researchers around the country. Welcome to the show today, Jamie. Are you ready to rock bees? I sure am. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? You probably want to know why did I pick bees? Really, I think the bees picked me. So I was a student at UC Berkeley and trying to kind of figure my way through my major. And I had an advisor named Gordon Frankie. And I would go to his office and talk to him about my classes and what I should be taking. And then quickly realized that my grants weren't going to cover all of the money that I needed. So I asked him if he knew of any jobs on campus or anybody that might hire me. And he was like, oh, yeah. He's like, well, do you like bees? And I said, sure. Is that a job? <laughs> and, he, and he was like, yeah. He's like, I could use, you know, a part-time research assistant in my lab. And I was like, all right, great. Wow. Yeah, so that's kind of how it started. I just was an undergraduate and was taking some of his classes and then started working in his lab and quickly realized that everything I thought I knew about bees was pretty trivial and minute. And yeah, then my professor, Gordon Frankie, he's very charismatic, very interested 
in the topic of native bees and educating people. And it was really just contagious. And I, I really fell in love with the bees as well. Nice. And what I know about bees, well, this is not quite true uh, because I've had several bee people on the podcast. But what I think most people know about bees is that there's honeybees, right? No other yep. bees. That's it. That's that's the only one that's out there, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's not the case. But before we started recording, you told me that you were trying to identify some bees today that don't have names yet? Yeah. So uh, let's kind of start large. So in the world, we have about 20,000 species of bees. Whoa. And yeah, that's greater than all the, the birds, fish, mammals put together. So bees are an incredibly diverse and specious group of organisms to work on. And where I live in California, we have 1,600 species of bees. Whoa. And many of these, yeah, many of them don't have names. They haven't been described yet. And there are no keys for many different groups. So the group I was working on is called Lazioglossum. It's a tiny sweat bee. And basically, I, I compare them to each other and decide th these bees are the same species and these ones are the same because they look slightly different. But I don't actually know what their names are because there aren't, there, there aren't any keys for this area. So it can be a little challenging at times. Wow. So you, you use the word sweat bees. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, so a sweat bee, they will like to land on your skin and lap up a tiny bit of your perspiration. They like the salts in our sweat. And so sometimes, and they're very, very tiny. I mean, most people wouldn't even notice that they're there. And in fact, I had never witnessed this. I had read about it, that that's why they were called sweat bees. But when I was in Arizona taking the bee course several years ago, I was out in a field collecting bees and I started walking around and I felt a pinch on the back of my knee. And I looked back and there was a teeny tiny sweat bee that had landed on my leg and was trying to get some of the salt from my sweat. And I accidentally pinched her in the back of my knee and she stung me. And it wow. was like the tiniest little pinprick of a sting. You know, she didn't mean to do it. I had uh, trapped her, basically. But yeah, so it was pretty neat to, to see that it, they actually do that. And some of them are quite beautiful. There's one in California that we call the ultra green sweat bee. And it's a beautiful metallic green jewel-like bee that is common all across the state. Wow. Yeah, they're beautiful. You call these bees tiny. What do you mean when you say tiny? How tiny are they? Because, you know, a bumblebee is what, the size of a dime? Yeah, or larger. Mm -hmm. Think about maybe the end of your thumb for some of the queens. Oh, yeah? A sweat bee, think about maybe the size of a grain of rice or smaller for some of these individuals. The ones I'm looking at are maybe four to five millimeters long. But that ultra green sweat bee I was talking about, that one's called Agapostamin. And that one is maybe about half an inch long and you know, very colorful with the bright green. So that one would be more noticeable than some of these other teeny tiny sweat bees. And on, so that's on the small side. How big are bees on the yeah. big side? On the big side, they can get quite large. So many people are familiar with carpenter bees yeah, because they think ones. that they're eating their, yeah, the big shiny black ones they think are eating their houses. They're not eating them per se. They're just constructing nests inside wood, but they can get quite large. Bigger, like bigger than, quarter? yeah, I mean, even larger, their bodies can, can be quite large, but they're, they're beautiful and very important pollinators. And most bees aren't hive bees like 
the honeybee, correct? Correct. Yeah. Most of our bees, about 70% are actually solitary. So that means they live by themselves. The female bee is essentially her own queen bee. After she mates, when she comes out of her nest, she will start doing all the work of collecting nectar and pollen, bringing it back to the nest that she builds by herself and provisioning it with the food, the nectar and pollen and laying the eggs and doing all of that all by herself. And that's typically underground. So most live in the soil. Yeah, I think a lot of people, like, you know, we have this mentality, we think about honeybees having the comb, but most of our native bees live by themselves and for the most part underground in the soil. And how do we encourage them in our spaces? <laughs> That's a great question. So basically, we, we plant the plants that they like to forage from. So native bees evolved with our native plants, you know, for thousands and thousands of years. So they're naturally pre-programmed to want to visit native plants. So here in California, where I live, I mean, we probably have five or six thousand species of native plants and they're so diverse because we have so many different species of bees pollinating them. So I like to tell people, you know, if you're going to plant a garden or you want to encourage them to come into your existing garden, start looking at and researching the native plants of your area because these are the ones that they already want to go to. So that's one thing that people can definitely do. And finding the natives is really maybe check with your cooperative extension or botanical gardens in your area? Yeah, or your native plant societies. So in California, we have the California Native Plant Society, and I'm Mm -hmm. sure that's the same for every other state. And they are a wonderful resource. And you can look at your local master gardeners. They often have great resources on native plants as well. Cool. And the importance of bees and their role in our ecosystems. Let's talk about that for a little while. Well, essentially, they are the number one pollinators of most ecosystems. So what they do is to help plants reproduce. So essentially, they help plants have sex. And they do that because they're moving the plant's pollen around. So bees evolve from wasps, and they're essentially a vegetarian, quote-unquote, wasp. Mm -hmm. And they have started collecting pollen as their main protein source instead of collecting insects. And so the pollen comes from different plants. And then when bees are going out and foraging, they often will stick with the same plant. And a little bit of that pollen will rub off on the next plant and pollinating it. And that helps that plant to then set seed and to be able to reproduce the next year. So these bees are essentially giving us a free service. You know, they help pollinate our food. One in three bites of food is the result of bee pollination. And it's not just bee bees that are doing that. It's our native bees as well, because they're already out there in the landscape scattered all over the place. So without bees, we would have a really bland diet. Uh You know, we would be eating things that are wind pollinated. So having bees out there helps us to have an extremely diverse and nutritious diet. And they also contribute to all those beautiful wildflower scenes that we see in the springtime with, Mm -hmm. you know, mountains and fields covered with California poppies and lupins and and all those things. I mean, we have bees to thank for all those things. Nice. And you made an interesting distinction between bees versus wasps. Yeah. Tell, tell, Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So wasps 
like to, they will go out and they are, looks, it looks like they're visiting flowers, but they're essentially looking for insects that are on the flowers, like mm. spiders and sometimes bees and caterpillars, and they will paralyze them and they will take them back to their nest and feed them to their young. And they, they aren't essentially collecting pollen, although there are still some pollen-collecting wasps, but by and large, they are just going for insects. But bees, their protein that they need to feed their young is just from that pollen that they're getting. So that's one of the main differences between bees and wasps. And bees, when you look at their hairs under a microscope, uh-huh. they're branched like a stalk of wheat. And so when that bee is flying through the air, it's building up static electricity and it lands on the flower and it helps the pollen to kind of jump right onto the bee, onto those pollen collecting hairs. And when you look at a wasp hair underneath a microscope, it's just a one straight single blade. So that's another difference between bees and wasps. Interesting. All right. So you've been studying bees for 15 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me, like, an, oh, my gosh, amazing story about bees. <laughs> You've gotta, there's got to be one out there that is just, like, almost unbelievable. Well, there's, there's a lot of really, really cool stories about bees. The thing that happened recently is that we were collecting bees down in Southern California and in some avocado orchards, and we collected a bee that looked superficially like a carpenter bee, and they brought it back to the lab, and I was looking at it under the microscope, and I thought, whoa, this bee is so crazy looking. This is not one of our native carpenter bees, but what is this? And I really had to rack my brain and put this bee through some of our keys to find out that it's a completely different bee that typically occurs in Mexico down to like Costa Rica. And so we're completely flabbergasted how this bee got to California. We have not collected another one since then, but it it just amazed us that somehow this bee showed up all the way in California, completely outside of its known range. Uh So we're constantly learning, you know, new things about bees because, you know, a lot of organisms are very well studied like birds and butterflies and we know where they go and how to identify them. But bees, there's just so many species and not enough people working on them that we're constantly finding new discoveries like that one. So there's many, many, many stories that we can tell about bees. So bees come out during different times of year, I would guess. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. So honeybees are pretty much active all year round, but our native bees are quite seasonal in nature. So in the springtime, when those very first wildflowers start blooming, there's the whole suite of bees that are associated with those flowers, and they emerge from their nest based on some kind of environmental cues. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the temperature's warmed up or the soil's dr- dried out enough, and the bees are, okay, it's my time, my flowers are blooming. And so they pop out of their nests and they start foraging from those spring wildflowers. But then as those flowers start to fade, the bees fall away. And so they build their nests and then they pass away. And then another suite of flowers will come into bloom. You know, you've got salvias and things like that. And then a whole other group of bees comes out. And so they kind of overlap each other all throughout the year. And it's great because I can kind of track where we are in the year based on the bees that I'm 
seeing in my garden. So the bees in my garden right now at the kind of tail end of summer are totally different than the bees that we're visiting in the springtime. So it's really interesting to kind of see how your garden can change based on the different bees that are coming out there. And that's another thing I like to tell people is, you know, if you're going to, you know, plant a garden or think about, you know, encouraging pollinators in your garden, you have to think seasonally because that's how the bees are are acting in the in the landscape. Mm-hmm. So if you just had all spring blooming flowers, your summer and fall bees would have nothing to forage on. So you have to think seasonally and you also want there to be the right resources available. So different plants provide a different resources. Some plants, like in the Asteraceae family or the sunflower family, they give us both nectar and pollen. And that's both of the things that bees need in order to to provision their nests for their young. But other plants like lavenders and salvias, they are mostly nectar-providing plants. And so the the bee is going to get a good amount of nectar and energy, which helps fuel their activities for the day, but they're not really getting any pollen, which they need that to feed to their young. So you also have to look at the rewards that those flowers are offering to the bees when you're planning out your garden for the bees. Awesome. And so we're kind of bumping up against what we can do to help the native bees in our area. We talked about planting mostly natives. We talked about thinking seasonally. What else is there to think about? So nesting spaces. So I talked about how most of the bees nest underground. So that means if you're one of these little teeny tiny bees like that four or five millimeter, you know, rice sized bee, if they are going to dig a hole in the ground, they have to have good access to that soil. But what do we do a lot of the times in our gardens to help, you know, conserve moisture and things like that? We tend to put a whole bunch of mulch on top of the soil. And that actually discourages our ground nesting bees. So we like to tell people that, you know, we totally understand the benefits of mulching. It's, it's very important, especially people like us that live in these desert areas. We need to conserve our water. But we just suggest leave some part of your garden that's kind of bare and wild and weedy. And those are the places that the bees are going to be able to find for nesting. So they'll have good access to the soil and they'll be able to dig their hole. But then there's other bees that don't nest in the ground and they like pre-existing cats cavities. So in the wild, they'll go to existing like beetle holes in wood. But we found that we can actually create some of these. So I know you've talked about mason bees in the past and leafcutter bees. And they like to nest in these cavities. So you can actually provide like a little bee condo or a bee house or some drilled holes in pieces of wood. And those bees will be able to find nesting spaces there. So in my garden, around my chicken coop, I have these large four by four beams and I drilled different size holes into the the beams. And by the next year, most of the holes were filled in uh, with either a little piece of mud on the outside, which tells me it's a mason bee, or a perfect little circular leaf piece, which tells me it was a leaf cutter bee. Ah. So... It can be just as easy as that. You don't have to do anything fancy. You can bundle pieces of like uh, paper straws or bamboo. Even a lot of plant stems, when you cut them, are hollow in the center. 
So last year, I bundled a bunch of stems of a plant called motherwort, which has a very square stem and is totally hollow. And I put the, I bundled them together and hung them in my garden. And I had mason bees nesting in them, which is cool. And I got to see them coming and going. And they hung out in my garden for a great part of springtime this year. It was really fun. Wow. When one of you mentioned mason bees, we had Dave Hunter on the yeah. podcast. He was episode 457 on June 29th. And he also uh, sent us over an article, The Future of Food and Around Native Bees. Um, mm-hmm. So you can look that up as well. But he was really interested, t- interesting talking about native bees and mason bees, which, you know. Oh, totally. Yeah. So providing nesting spaces, water. Let's talk about water. Yeah, yeah. So in any like wildlife garden, you have to provide water. And the cool thing about native bees is that they don't actually need a water source. They get most of the water that they need from the nectar in the plants. But honeybees do need a place to collect water. So what I do in my garden is I have the little dish that sits under a plant to kind of collect the water. I have one that's totally glazed and I set it on top of a cinder block and I put two large rocks on the side of it. And so when the honeybees come, they land on the rock and then they kind of walk themselves down and Mm. and suck up the water so Uh they don't drown. So that's a great thing to do. And then the mason bees that need mud for their nesting, they will actually, if they cannot find a mud source, they will go and collect a little bit of water and mix it with dirt to make their own mud. So the the water is for them as well. And then, you know, just change it out every couple of days. You're going to get birds going in there as well and all kinds of fun things. I see we put a trail camera on ours and we have cats and raccoons coming in the night to drink out of them. <laughs> so it's it's fun. It, it helps everybody out in the end. Yeah, we actually, we have water on our back patio for, we have a couple of outdoor cats and here about a year and a half ago, it's like 1030 at night. Now, what you have to know is that we live right in the middle of Phoenix. Uh-huh. Um, if you stand on my roof and look 50 miles in each direction, there's city. And yeah. at 1030 at night, about a year and a half ago, Heidi calls me to the window and she says, Greg, look what's out there. And it was a raccoon. Nice. Right in, right in the <laughs> middle of the city. Yeah, it was interesting. It was interesting. That's for sure. Cool. Two more things about creating habitats. You talk about utilizing organic gardening practices. One of the things that came to me about that is no-till gardening. So I'm a Mm -hmm. big proponent of no-till. When you till your soil, it breaks up the soil structure and kills the microorganisms. And it it never occurred to me until right now in our conversation that it is also destroying bee habitat. Tell me about that. Yeah, potentially for sure. Yeah. So if the native bees are nesting in the nice bare parts of your soil by doing extreme heavy tilling, you definitely could be upending some of their nests and destroying them or hurting them in some way. So yeah, I try in my garden to only prep the hole for the specific plant that I'm planting. Mm -hmm. And I try not to disturb the rest of the soil for exactly that reason. And then, you know, another big part of this organic gardening is the the unuse or don't, you, you know, not using insecticides and fungicides and pesticides because all those things can kill our bees and many, many other valuable insects in our gardens. So I don't know if you or your readers have heard of these neonicotinoid pesticides. Oh, Lord, yes. 
Yeah, yeah. So they're systemic. They, you know, can treat the seed. And when the whole plant grows, the whole thing is poisoned. So think that, you know, if you're a little bee and you're out there foraging and you need your nectar and your pollen to feed to your babies, you're getting poisoned nectar and pollen. And so you're essentially killing the next generation of bees in your garden. So we definitely advocate for, you know, making sure you know where you're buying your plants from, that they're reputable growers, and ask them questions about where they buy their plants from, how the plants are treated throughout the whole process, making sure they're not treated with any pesticides. And in your own garden when you're working, you know, you don't need to to spray all these different things. If you have organic gardening practices, you have all the beneficial bugs, like all the, the wasps out there that should be keeping the bad pest bugs in check. So now, I've been organic here at the Urban Farm for 30 years now. I've been here 30 years mm-hmm. this month. And what I work on is creating healthy soil. And I don't have a pest problem here. Yeah. You know, do pests show up occasionally? Yes, they do. But things are in balance in this space and it's just, it becomes a non-issue that way. Totally. The other, the other thing on your list for creating habitat is observation and monitoring your own pollinators. That is the key premise of, in my opinion, of permaculture is to go out Mm -hmm. and observe. So you're, And as a taxonomist, you're doing a lot of observation, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, often people will hire me and I design a garden and they install it and they're like, now what? And I'm like, well, get out there and see what's going on. (laughs) All right. You know, so, you know, I know there's a lot of birders out there, but I consider myself a beer and I like to go outside and watch all the bees going, you know, through the flowers in my garden. So I tell people, you know, go and sit outside, grab a cup of coffee or an iced tea or something. And at, you know, the nicest part of the day when it's nice and warm and sunny and with little wind, just go out there and plop yourself in front of a big patch of flowers and watch, you know, all the different interactions happening because, you know, oftentimes people don't, you know, stop and smell the roses, you know, you need to just get out there and and see what's going on. And then you start to see all these fascinating interactions. So there's this bee that we have here called the wool carter bee. And the exact species I'm I'm talking about is a non-native bee that was introduced from Europe the European wool carter bee, but we do have native species of this type of bee as well. But they are so much fun to watch. They'll set up territories. So the male bees will set up a territory around a patch of its favorite flowers and it patrols. So if any other bee comes into its spot, it will bonk into them. They essentially will ram them with their heads, their whole bodies, wow. and try to get them to leave. Yeah. And what they want is for that patch to be totally free so that the females can come in and do all their collecting of nectar and pollen. And so in return for keeping this nice space for the females, they get to mate with them as many times as they want. So this is something that not a people, a lot of people get to see is bees mating in their garden. But this one species of the wool carter bee, you see it all the time. And it's so much fun. They have no shame. They will run into insects that are larger than them. You know, we even had a, a student one time that was a 
observing this, and she got bonked right in the center of her forehead. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're super funny, but male bees can't sting, so you don't have to be afraid of them. Another fun little tidbit for you. But yeah, so if you just get out there and watch, you'll start to see all these really fun things happening. And sometimes if you go out to your garden really early in the morning, you're going to see some other fun interactions like male bees sleeping together in a flower. So this is something that happens every year on my cosmos or my sunflowers. And and during the daytime, these male bees are patrolling, flying into each other, you know, scurrying around, you know, almost fighting for the, this habitat, trying to mate with the females. But at nighttime, they all curl up on the exact same flower together and, and kind of have a little sleepover together. Wow. So I it's just, really cute. I just looked up... European wool carter bee. Mm-hmm. It looks like a honeybee. Oh, interesting. But yeah. don't, don't you see all the spots on it? All right. So here's the thing. My distinction is uh-huh. uh, leaf cutter bees. I've seen them. Yep. Honeybees and carpenter bees. And I know that's, that's a small distinction. So that's all I have to draw from. <laughs> and I'm sure you're, you're distinguishing them would be, oh my gosh, do they have uh, dots on their wings? And, you know, and I'm just not seeing that. Yeah, yeah, well, that's funny. <laughs> so one of the cool things that I do here at the Urban Farm is I grow mint and oregano and basil, the herbs, and I just let them go to flower. And during the time of year that they're flowering, they are covered with bees. So one of the things I'm going to have to go out and do is start looking at the different kinds of bees or flying things that are around them. Um, yeah, that'll be so much fun. You know, you can even take a little insect net and collect a bee and you could put it in a glass jar and stick it in your freezer for a few minutes and that'll make the bee slow down. Don't and freeze it all the way. Don't freeze it all the way. Don't put it in overnight. I'm just talking about 15 or 20 minutes here. And then you can get a really good look at this bee while it's moving slowly and a little bit groggy. Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of see the, the differences a lot easier because when they're moving, they are so fast. They're just a blur. Right. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason why I haven't really distinguished more bees than the three that I talked about because it's just this yeah. thing that's flying by, right? Exactly. I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. I thought back to when I first started college and straight from high school, my very first semester, I totally flunked out. I failed all my classes and I went from being a straight A student in high school to basically feeling like I didn't know anything. And basically what happened was I I wanted to study environmental science and my college didn't offer that. They offered environmental engineering. So they said, that's the same thing here. So they put me in all engineering classes. And I I didn't know well enough to to say, hey, you know, this isn't me. I shouldn't be in here. And I took all these classes for engineers and I totally failed. So I was on academic probation and had to work really, really hard over the next couple of semesters to, to get out of that hole. And eventually I just decided, you know, the university was so large. The classes were so big. I just felt so tiny and insignificant. So I transferred to a community college where I studied culinary art, something I was super passionate and interested in and did that for a while. And then 
you know, after a few years, just really felt the pull back to the environmental science field. And I went back to school again and eventually was able to transfer to UC Berkeley. And that's where all this great bee stuff came about. So I realized that I just had to advocate for myself and and speak up for myself about what I really was interested in wanting to learn. Amen to that. So interestingly enough, you and I have that same thing in common. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a few years before you in 1979, I graduated from high school and I, you know, as, as I, as a proper high school graduate does, you go right into college. So I spent a couple of years in uh, community college and then I ended up at Arizona State University. And back then, this was 1981, I was self-employed. I was, you know, I was running a fish pond business here in town and I owned a gift wrap center in the malls at Christmas time. And I, I didn't really want to be learning the way they wanted me to learn. So my first semester at Arizona State University, I got a 0.5 grade average. That's two D's wow. in it. That's two D's in an F, right? Yeah. And my dad kind of got it that I really didn't want to be in school and, you know, he was paying for it. And so he said, all right, Greg, you just have to move out. So I moved out in 1981 and, you know, went out on my own. I was still self-employed. But the interesting thing for me is I never stopped learning. I'm a lifelong learner. I love to learn, right? Totally. Yeah. And I did go back to Arizona State University on academic probation in 1999. So 19 years later. Great. Studying studying botany and urban planning. I put the two of them together. And this time around, I, you know, I got a 3.97 as an undergraduate, and then I got a master's degree and I got a 4.0 doing that. But it was my time to learn. And the, exactly. It's something yeah, that you were interested in. Exactly. And the interesting thing for me is when I landed in 1999 at Arizona State University, I had 127 credit hours that I had accumulated over 20 years because every time I was interested in something, I'd go back to Phoenix College, the community college, and take a class on writing or on how to run a small business or on solar panels or on wastewater management. So I never stopped learning along the way, but it was was the right time the second time around. Sounds like it was for you. Oh, totally. For sure. You know, it's like, I think it's so interesting that I feel bad for kids these days that have all these high expectations for them. Graduate, go to college, do what you're, you know, and it's like, how do you know what you want to do when you're that young? (laughs) Right. It takes us a long time. Because my game the second time around in college was totally different than the first time. And it sounds like it was for you too. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So what do you consider your biggest success? For me, the fact that I can make a living doing what I actually love to do. Oh, yay. Um, You know, to me, that's just my biggest success. And every day I love that my work is different because I can be behind a microscope. I can be in a garden. I can be doing some outreach and education, teaching people. And it makes what I do feel really meaningful. So for me, like that to me is my, my biggest success. Nice. And what drives you? I think similar to you, you know, you said you're a lifelong learner. I'm curious about so much of the natural world. You know, I'm always wanting to learn more. I, you know, I, I started, you know, learning about plants and bees and I've been a gardener for many, many years. And 
I started learning about Western herbalism and how plants heal people. And I fell in love with plants even more after that. And, you know, I'm just, I've been a lifelong learner. And when I do my bee work, every bee that I identify is like a puzzle that I can't wait to solve. So I I love that. I love that each of these bees is a mystery that I, I get to get to the bottom of. So that's what keeps me coming to work every day. Just, I'm so curious. Nice. Congratulations. That is, that is a huge gift for all you all listening out there. It is an absolutely a huge gift. If you can get to a place that you get to do what you love to do for a living. And if you're not in that place, go out and discover more and get there because it, it's it's magic. It makes it all the difference in the world. Don't you think? Totally. It changes, changes your life for the better. Yeah. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Oh, so I've been reading this wonderful book called Our Native Bees, North America's Endangered Pollinators and the Fight to Save Them. This was written by a woman called Paige Embry. She's up in Seattle and she traveled around the country and learn from different bee researchers all these amazing stories highlighting native bees that are mostly forgotten because, like you said earlier, most people really only know about honeybees, maybe bumblebees. So she wrote this book and she kind of goes through many important stories about maybe extinct bumblebees, bees that live on farms and help pollinate our crops. And different things like that. And I think it's a great resource for people that are want to learn more. They want something that's maybe more extensive than just a field guide. This actually has great bee stories and can help you get very curious about bees and want to learn more about them. Awesome. That is Our Native Bees, North America's Endangered Pollinators and the Fight to Save Them by Paige Embry. It was, yeah. the, it was interestingly, it was the New York Times 2018 holiday gift selection about nice. honeybees. Yeah, that, was, that came out in 2018. And 18. I'll have to reach out to her and see if we can get her on the show. Oh, you absolutely should. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Okay, so it's very easy. If you plant it, they will come. I tell this to all the gardeners I run into, everybody that I give talks to, because everybody wants to help out the pollinators, but they don't know what to do. So if you plant the garden for them, the bees will find it, they will come, and you'll be helping to conserve a valuable resource in our ecosystem. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jamie. It has been enlightening. Oh, you're so welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Okay, so I have a website. It's wildbeegardendesign.com, or you can email me at wildbeegardendesign at gmail.com. And there's also another great website I want to recommend. It's the lab that I work in, the Urban Bee Labs website called helpabee.org. And so if you're curious to learn more about anything I touched on today, that website is going to be a wonderful resource for you. Nice. So, all right. So since you brought it up and I know we're wrapping up here, but tell me more about helpabee.org. That sounds fascinating. It's great. So I helped design this website many years ago for the Urban Bee Lab, Gordon Frankie's lab here. And it's the main purpose of his research is to do outreach and education. So he wants to learn about the bees and the flowers, but then he wants the people in the general public to find out what we've been learning. So this is a great website for the lay person, anybody that, you know, is just 
just starting to get curious. It's written in a way that can be understood by a wide audience. I, when I write things, I write them for my Nana. So I mm, want, yes. you know, if my Nana can understand it, anyone can understand it. So I, I write with her in mind and it's a great resource. There's, there's plant lists on there. There's gardening information. There's more technical information on the difference between bees and wasps more resources and publications that the lab has put out and they do a great newsletter as well. So I encourage anyone that's more curious to learn more to check them out. Nice. You know, I have one big problem with my podcast and in almost 500 episodes, I have met at least 499 people that I want to hang out with more. (laughs) This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing. You did great. Oh, thank you. So much. Man, if we live closer, I'd want to hang out and learn more from you. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to come visit you someday soon then. There you go. We're in Phoenix. So you come back to Phoenix and we'll be there. And uh, if I come up Berkeley Way, I'll reach out to you. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash wildbeegarden. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's denalicanning.com forward slash free.